independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening, happy April, welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we are very happy to have Ted Russell Camp. Musicians can't choose the specific gig, song, or happenstance that will bring them notoriety or a payday hit. Indeed, many artists have their fingers in a lot of pies. A sideman gig here, a songwriting contribution or guest spot there. After going up back east, Los Angeles' Ted Russell Camp's first big breaks came as the bass player for artists like Shooter Jennings and Wilson Phillips. But he is far from the kind of guy content to hold down the low end in the shadows next to the drum riser. He has eight albums of his own under his belt, and the newest, Night Owl, was just released in early 2013. Camp has infused Night Owl with the hard-won wisdom of hundreds of shows in smoky bars from Atlantic to the Pacific and far beyond, and a keen ear for a memorable turn of phrase. Camp has made a lot of friends along the way, and the credits on all his albums read like a who's who of top-notch players and writers. Such a journeyman work ethic has served him well as his reputation as a solo artist continues to grow and the world discovers a rare talent. Welcome to Independence Day. Ted Russell Camp. Thanks very much for having me as a guest. It's it's excellent. It's excellent to have you. We've run in the same circles for a long time, but I think this is the first time you and I have actually had a serious conversation yeah. of any kind, or or a whimsical conversation, or conversation of any kind. <laughs> so I'm very very happy to have you, man. Yeah. Uh, what initially? You know, you grew up back east. Where exactly did you grow up? Because I feel people's formative years are where they spend that so oh, yeah. important musically. I grew up in New York. I was in the suburbs of New York in Westchester. Okay, Westchester, uh, uh, which was actually wonderful. Uh, Born in White Plains, or actually Hartsdale. Okay. Which is, most people, once you leave New York, will know yeah. White Plains. Um, but uh, yeah, I grew up there. It was wonderful. It was about a half hour train ride into into Manhattan. So uh, as I got more courageous and more artistic, I was able to take the train into the village to you know go to the Museum of Modern Art. How old were you when you started going into the city for stuff like that? Uh, well, I'd go into my go in with my parents. And, uh, you know, when I was seven or eight, okay. my mom was a big fan of Broadway. Okay. So we would go to see musicals yeah. a lot. Uh, and then when I, I guess maybe when I was in high school, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. we were able to go take the train into the city and really just kind of walk around cool neighborhoods and shop yeah. and buy hot dogs and then go home. Yeah. Uh, buy records. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We would go to St. Mark's. So important and, um, to have like a center of culture yeah. close to where you grew up. I mean, some kind of thing. I mean, I yeah, know- it was it was really important, and I think a lot of my. I mean, I didn't grow up. Uh, it's not like my dad was a professional musician and my mom was an opera singer, or my dad was a radio personality or something. Uh, they loved music, but it wasn't really around. They weren't great musicians that kind of passed it on to me right away. So, where do you um, think you got it? Um. Well, my dad was. My dad did play trumpet when he was in big in in uh, big bands when he was in college, so he had a trumpet lying around. He would he would he would pick it up and do a Louis Armstrong imitation about once a month. I remember every, every, some random Saturday or Sunday morning he would wake up and do his Louis Armstrong thing for about a minute to when, wake you up. You mean? And that was it. Not really. <laughs> Get up, when kid. I, no, he he would lure my sister and I away from the Saturday morning cartoons okay. or when it was time for brunch or something. Uh, uh, but 
I think, anyway, I started playing trumpet in the fourth grade. Okay. Because everyone in my school, you had to either take an instrument or join the choir. Uh, and I was a pretty shy and fairly nerdy kid. So I would, um, uh, you know, I kind of took the trumpet l- like it was a class. And whereas most people just showed up in the school band and didn't really care and didn't play, I would practice. Yeah. Like I actually practiced. And I got pretty good at it and I, I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, so I was in kind of all-county all jazz bands and stuff like that through late elementary school and middle school. And then in high school, I got a bass guitar, and that's really when it kind of turned around. That's, well, that's, that's when it became personal. Right. It wasn't just like a really cool class. And I, yeah, I like, I like Tommy Dorsey. I'll learn yeah. this trumpet part. It's great. Yeah. I like, you know, John Philip Sousa. But it was, it was just school band music. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad I had those years. Uh, and especially as I got more into jazz later, having my formative years be involved in jazz phrasing and learning how to play trumpet, uh, you know, Duke Ellington scores and stuff like that, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. Uh, but when I got a bass guitar and started playing with my buddies in high school rock bands, that's really when it, uh, when the, the passion side of music started entering. So who, who were you emulating? You know, every band, like, they get together with their buddies, you know, they're in, like, junior high or high school, and you start piecing yeah. a band together. Like, who were the bands that you guys wanted to be? We didn't have a... Uh, my first few rock bands in high school, we didn't have a guiding light. It was a small enough school. It was about 1,200 people. So that's 300 people in every grade, and that's only six or seven musicians in every grade. Um, so I remember... The lead singer in my first band always wore a Brian Adams. He he got a sleeveless black Brian Adams T-shirt mm-hmm. that he got at the big Brian Adams show, probably that year. And uh, so he loved that and pop music. Uh, our keyboard player loved Genesis. I remember him trying to convince us to do Abacab for months and without letting up. Uh, and he was he was a real he he had opera training. And classical music training. So he he was really into prog rock. So the first time I heard ELP okay. uh, and Camel <laughs> and stuff like yeah. uh, early, the early, early Genesis. And then what did you bring uh, to this, this I, ensemble? I, I got a little bit of me, my music from my older sister, two years older than me. Um, but I really just had, it was the dawn of MTV growing up in the suburbs of New York City. Like we had, we had MTV before it went national. Uh, and so I remember Ario Speedwagon was mm-hmm. big. Right. The, uh, Synchronicity by the Police was a big record for me. Um, and actually the day I went to Sam Ash Music Store in White Plains, New York to get the bass I'll play later tonight, uh, the first thing I figured out in the music store was Walking on the Moon by the Police. I mean, it's a four note, very simple bass part. Yeah. But uh, but you need that. When you're first starting yeah. out, that's so important. I mean, I remember when I was learning to play guitar in the suburbs of Chicago, very similar type of environment to what you were in. I mean, I would sit around and I would just turn the classic rock station on and then play, or at least try to play, every single song that came up. 
you know, and you had, you know, and you just play along with it, like three to five minutes to get through, and just do it as much as you could in that time. Yeah, and it really, it was a really good training because it got you thinking fast, you know. And back then it was different, you know. You you, know, you have to tune your guitar a little bit because Van Halen was always down a half step or thereabouts, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and totally. you have to kind of tune to the song real fast and then pick up the chord changes as much as you can. I mean, you wouldn't know the song note for note, of course, in the amount of time it took to listen to it. But it was the it was probably about the best musical training I've ever had in my life. Was yeah. sitting four hours a night. And just playing and just every playing along. every single song that came up because you learn very quickly what diatonicism is. You know, you start applying those lessons you're hearing. You know, in music scales theory. and dynamics. Scales and, and dynamics and like song structure. Song structure. Oh, the chorus has to be coming. I got to get into the yeah. I got to get ready with my open D. Yeah, and you learn the one whatever. four five so fast. Yeah, you know, and there's always those songs. You know, there's classic rock songs that are super super popular, sold millions of copies like More Than a Feeling is one that comes to mind mm -hmm. it's fairly complex once it gets going with all those guitar parts but that intro every high school kid who can play a D chord learns to play that little arpeggiated intro yeah. to that tune or like and the Creedence songs are great because they're relatively simple chord parts Yeah, you know? and, the, and the Creedence in retrospect that really is a lot of people's intro introduction to the blues yeah yeah, indeed. You, know, you don't really know it because they rocked it up in such a way. Yeah. And John and John Fogarty had such a great gift with melody. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it's it's you know Susie Q. He would do all these great old blues tunes. Yeah. And kind of make them his own. Yeah. And, and rock so, them up. so like elegant simplicity yeah. is the thing that I always think about with yeah. CCR. Anyway, let's play. Uh, you've got a brand new record out. We're gonna fast forward a little bit. We can come back okay. and talk more about okay. formative years if, if it comes back around. But I want to get. I want to let people know you've got this brand new record just came out early this year called Night Owl. Yeah. And this is your eighth record, if I'm counting correctly. Because uh, you had a kind of a paired record that was kind of a, a companion, almost oh, a dual yeah. record. Well, in that there. was that was um, basically what was it? My my record before Night Owl was taking a long time to finish. Or no, maybe it was Night Owl. It was taking a long time to finish. So I, I put out a semi-greatest hits, yeah. which was a digital-only thing, the California Country yeah. Soul. Yeah. Uh, and so I put out, that's a two-series thing with ballads is one of them and rockers is the other. Yeah. So that was mostly a semi-greatest hits of like a couple songs from every record I'd done before with, I think, three unreleased tunes. Yeah. So, uh, we'll so that I don't really count that as an album. Yeah. Because well, it's kind of more of a compilation. Once you've got more than five, that quant that's a catalog of music. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like you've got a couple and now you've got this new one. So you've got a bunch of records. Oh, yeah. Not even counting the stuff, you've, the countless records I'm sure you've played on, I played on with other, other people. Yeah. Well, and we'll talk about that after this tune, but I want to I give people a taste of this. This is a track from Night Owl. This track is called The Last Drop. Tell me a little bit about this tune before we roll into uh, this. This one is kind of New Orleans-y. Uh, I've I've always had this kind of dichotomy. The more I've gotten into songwriting and really storytelling, um, part of me wants to be very serious and honest, but there's also part of me that has been a bass player forever and a musician and a fan of all this different eclectic music. We talked about jazz. I got heavily into New Orleans music and the meters. I love Little Feet. Uh, I love that whole California, uh, Laurel Canyon country rock thing. I love Leon Russell and J.J. Cale. Uh, people who can jump genres and combine sounds, and I kind of try to do that with my records. Yeah. So this tune really is this kind of, uh, it's got this kind of percolating New Orleans-y rhythm, and I just wanted, uh, uh, anyway, it's a, it's a feel-good sentiment about trying to yeah. live life to the fullest. Well, Enough of this record is a fairly heavy uh, nighttime mood record. I wanted at least a few tracks that would yeah. kind of pick up the pace and bounce it along a little bit. So this is one of them. Even, uh, even Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here ends on a major chord. 
That's right. Yeah. You know, everybody, these, you know, you need, need a little bit of that, uh, little bit of hope in your despair, man. Just, I love, I love depressing sure. music, sure. but you got to have a little bit of hope in there somewhere. So, uh, my guest tonight, Ted Russell Camp on Independence Day. This is a track from his brand new record, just came out a couple months ago. But uh, have no fear if you want to go to that record release show, that's going to come up at the Grand Ole Echo on the 21st of April. It's a Sunday free show. Those are excellent shows. Kim Grant and her company puts those on. Excellent, yeah. excellent shows. So, I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, get a taste of this. This is the, uh, the track, sorry, the album Night Owl, and the track is the last drop Ted Russell Camp on Independence Day I want to drink the last drop from the bottom of the well I want to drink the last drop from the bottom of the well I want to be the first in the morning up to see the sun in the last man standing when the day is done and I drink the last drop the bottom of the well I want to see the first twinkling star light up the sky I want to see the first twinkling star light up the sky I'm gonna let it shine down the stars don't lie and just watch as it put that look in your eye when I see the first twinkling star light up the sky
And boy, don't we love that, man. That is great. That is super groovy. I love hearing, like <laughs> you were saying before, we went into that tune. My guest tonight, Ted Russell Camp, I'm talking to him on Independence Day. He's got a brand new record. Night Owl just came out in January, but you can catch that at the Grand Ole Echo, the CD release party. Is it a, like I said, it's a CD, right? It's not an album release or a record release. It's still a uh, CD well, I release. I call them albums and records. Yeah. And they are records of yeah. what I'm going through this year. Yeah. The same way anyone who makes an album. Exactly. That's what it is. Well, that's why you hearken back to the original yeah. name for an album. It's a group of stuff, whether it's pictures or songs yeah. or whatever. It's an album of stuff. But you can go see that uh, album release party, CD release party at the Grand Ole Echo on April the 21st. But we were talking before we went into the break there that you know you try to spread your music around different styles, that kind of thing. Is yeah. you're, most musicians who like really, they write, they're into so many different things. Um, I mean, are you the kind of guy that when you're listening to music, like you know so many musicians... You'll hear somebody who's like Sam Beam from Iron and Wine. He's just an example. I have no idea if he listens to Tupac. But you'll hear that so many times where you'll hear an artist who does one style that they're so known for, but they, they're listening to all these different things, you know? Yeah, right? and, they're, you and they're, they're, they're making music in the style that they're doing it in by choice. Okay. Often because that's what feels most honest. Yeah. Uh, Did you, when you were trying to find your voice as a writer... Um, did you, well, did that come naturally to you or did you have a hard time kind of like pig, like figuring out what it was that your voice was? And I don't mean literally your voice, but your, your artistic um, voice. Yeah. I think it takes a while to figure out what your voice is. Um, especially I came from, well, I, I I've always written songs, but and up until about 10 years ago, the lyrics were just an excuse to, cause so, you had to say something to sing a melody. Yeah. And it was really a, uh, the the goal was to just write a good melody and get a good vibe and whether it be danceable or moody or thoughtful or celebrational um the lyrics were kind of secondary and and the lyrics were often pretty one dimensional yeah what's well, the hallmark of back on that stuff. true pop music you know the lyrics are merely there to to have a melody to have something to sing yeah you know you're not you're not giving anybody anything of real but truly great there. pop music there's a there's a, a rich sentiment they manage to they manage to combine the two they, and they and often great pop music is it's very poetic and very simple at the same time right Tom Petty for me has always been a classic example of that yeah that, like elegant simplicity where on the surface it sounds like what he's doing is very simple but if you really dig in and figure out what he's doing yeah. it's it's what he's not putting in there that makes him brilliant you know, yeah, it's he's totally. knowing what not to play and what like to be tasteful with it and mature and still write like music that's very accessible because right. it has to be somewhat simple to be accessible to a lot of people. And he leaves a lot of space. He leaves a lot of space. Yeah. He's... And the most impressive thing at all, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, is he surrounds himself with excellent players, and he's been very fortunate to have found Mike Campbell, <laughs> Ben Montage, Stan oh, yeah. Lynch very early on. I think the uh, almost every single member of the Heartbreakers redefined how rock music can be played. And having been a professional musician now for about 20 years, let's say almost every single recording session I've done, someone brings up, can you do a Ben Montench kind of thing? Yeah. Or can you do a Mike Campbell kind of thing? Or can you do a Stan Lynch kind of thing? Or even Steve Ferroni now. Yeah. You know, it's like it's, uh, they were just amazing and they developed together. Yeah. You know? They're like you too in that regard. Like oh, they yeah. were so young when they started playing together that what, you know, and it's what I was going to say about the Heartbreakers is that I say this all the time, kind of in jest, but I think it's true. Whatever they play, 
whatever note or chord or whatever their part has been on any song that they've ever played is exactly the right thing to play. Because just like what you just said, they yeah. wrote the book. You know, they they yeah. invented, you know, Ben Montench essentially invented the way you play keyboards cool in, a rock modern, keyboards. in a modern rock band. Yeah. You know, not a lot of posturing, just the right part. You yeah. Know? Same for Mike Campbell. You know, not a lot of posturing. You know, he can play fast if he wants to, but... He seldom does. He rarely does. Yeah. He just plays what fits, you know. And then, you know, because you've played with so many musicians, man. Tell me how, you know, you come to L.A. and then Shooter Jennings is what I, I know you from. Yeah. Um, that's a big, it's a pretty big gig. Oh, that was a wonderful. How, how, did, you, how did you land that? How having, did that happen? Got here? Well, I was in a, I was living in, after, after New York, after college, I moved to Seattle. And I played music there for a living for about six, seven years. Um, and I had kind of gotten... I was not really a grunge guy, and I was gigging all the time. Uh, and I kind of got tired. I was like, all right, I'm tired of making $75 or $100 a night playing with everyone. I feel like I play with almost everyone in town, except for those people who are truly on the national level and right. touring around. And there, once you um, get to that point, you're almost not really even from Seattle. It doesn't matter where you live. Right. You can just kind of, you're going there to vacation in between other gigs. It's where you collect mail when you get off the road. Yeah. Um, and so I came to L.A. to kind of make bigger things happen. And I said, okay, I need to go to a place that has more music industry. And I don't know what it's going to be or how it's going to happen. But I need more options than just playing in the, like these really wonderful but cool local bars. Um, so I came to L.A. and I was at the time, and one of the reasons I came to L.A. aside from industry, is I was a huge fan of Jackson Brown and Little Feet and the Eagles and that and, – uh, that whole California country rock thing, the Laurel Canyon, uh, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. Uh, and there was this kind of dream of that that kind of was influenced me. And one of the things that I loved when I first got here is you could go to these places where the doors recorded or Janis Joplin drank the night before she died. Yeah. And you could like go in there, going to, oh, I think it's the Frolic Room, which is where Charles Bukowski used to drink. Not music, but... Right. But the the history of of him and other writers and Raymond Chandler and the history of film and TV, the fact that's all that's right here, uh, it's such a, a a dreamy and mysterious place. It's a very romantic place. Yeah, and I mean it's that very in, romantic. in the humanities sense. You know, yeah. where like I in high school, I was obsessed with Hotel California. Mm-hmm. I would listen to that album over and over, and yeah. that album cover, like that, that to me, but just palm trees in the space. Yes, yeah, palm trees with a yellow sunset <clears throat> behind yeah. it. The silhouette of the palm trees, the Spanish architecture. You know, I can't tell you. I used to. So you do ridiculous things in high school. I used to go to like music choir class, and I would draw that on the chalkboard. Oh, that's cool. You know, because I, I had mastered like my way I could do palm trees with chalk, and <laughs> that to me, like that was that's what I wanted to do. Because yeah. I grew up in suburban Chicago, it was freezing half the year, right. and wherever you, I mean. When you're a kid, almost no matter where you grow up, it's not where you want to be, just because it's where you are, you know. Sure, you um, you you long for something else. You long for whatever that is, something somewhere else. And like that album, and, and that was their intent too to encapsulate that Southern California thing from the mid '70s, early yeah. '70s. And and it's interesting as a musician now later to to know how calculated that was. Yeah, they like the Eagles were just unbelievably talented, but they really kind of just pulled the wool over everybody's eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's not as far as the Monkees in terms of being right, right. being prefabricated, but right. it definitely was intended. It was custom built to sell millions upon millions yeah. of records and capture you know the zeitgeist of a 
period in a place. Yeah. You know, and other music has done that too. You know, they got like the talking heads from the from New York in nineteen seventy nine. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's so many bands that kind of capture the like REM from rural Georgia in the yeah. late eighties. They, you know, they, the Athens, Georgia, this kind of quirky, very southern but very intellectual yeah. scene. Yeah. They really kind of were something new and special. I, I not from Chicago, but up in, vaguely in that area was Husker Du. Yeah. Was a very cool band that I was into in high school. Yeah, well, Husker Du um, and the Replacements, kind yeah. of, and then well, aside from Prince, of course, they had a very they they really were this kind of cool Minneapolis thing. Yeah, and for people from other parts of the country who like have never been there, uh, they, you you dream about the place where this music is made and yeah. what kind of people they are. Yeah, and so is that so? Is, so you came, so you went to Seattle first, and then came to LA. Yeah. Okay, but that was that was part of that romance, though that like yellow oh, sunshine yeah. with the with the palm oh, yeah, trees. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. I had I had uh, I had been in a few different bands that had toured down, come down to Southern California to tour. You know, it was it was a somewhat if you were serious about your music and you were in a rock band or something of some kind in in uh, Seattle, you'd book a tour down I five, mm-hmm. and you'd work your way through, through Portland and then San Francisco, and then work your way back down to L A. Yeah, and then you'd have to work your way back. Way back up, and you know, playing Davis and Eureka yeah. and yeah. Bend, Oregon, and stuff like that. But coming to the LA was a real destination. And often with those bands, you know, we would play the Cat Club at 11 o'clock on a Monday night for the drummer's ex girlfriend and the guitarist's <laughs> friend yeah. from middle school whose brother lives in LA. It was like, yeah. And, you know, the dream of David Geffen walking in the room while you're playing the big gig at the Cat Club. And then you get there and it's like, okay, there's the bartender and five people. And you're like, wow, we just drove 2,000 miles for this. Uh, And then you get a little bit smarter each time. Uh, But the goal, and and this is also before the music industry had changed quite a bit, you could still have A&R people or whoever just kind of stumble into a bar and say, you know, you deserve a record deal. You kids are great. They were out looking Uh, at one point. They were out looking. Um, anyway, so I came to LA and the, the, uh, this Southern thing, this country singer songwriter thing was forming. I had discovered the band, which is huge for me, seeing the last waltzes. I, I not only got all the records, but I watched the last waltz dozens and dozens of times. Um, I remember I was in a hotel, I was, I was touring with, with, uh, my old band in Colorado. No, it, we were in Salt Lake City. We had just played in Salt Lake City. We went back to the hotel room, and I saw the Austin City limits of the old 97s in Whiskey Town. And they were in the same episode. They each did, I guess, a yeah. half-hour set. And I was like, these, these guys are doing exactly what I want to be doing. Yeah. It was and, similar for me, except it was like Uncle Tupelo and Sunvolt yeah. and Wilco. Same kind of thing. And the Jayhawks. Yeah, totally. I'm a huge Jayhawks guy. Jayhawks are great. Same kind of thing, just different flavor. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, that, so it all kind of, L.A. seemed like the place I had to move. So I came here, and I uh, was in this band that I came down from Seattle with, uh, and then we lasted about six months or a year or two, year, year, maybe slightly more than a year. Uh, and then I just started playing bass with everyone I could play with, uh, making a good living, kind of freelancing. This was the era when you like everyone was doing showcases for labels, and so... I would get calls from people I'd never met before. Hey, I got your number from someone. They say you're a good bass player. I'm playing at Genghis Cohen in three weeks. And I would say, great, get me the CD. I'll learn it. We'll do one rehearsal, and then I'll do the showcase. 
some of those would evolve into longer relationships and friendships and people, you know, you'd play in their band once a month for the next two years. Some of them you never heard from again. You learn yeah. their album. Some of them you just, uh, you'd literally never meet until you show up for the gig. It's almost, and, uh, it's almost like jazz. Yeah. And my, my instincts for just listening and thinking on my feet were really great at that time. Like, I remember, I remember there was a, one particular gig at the Roxy I did. The, it was a good pop band, but they decided to do a song I'd never heard before. And I got through it without making a mistake. I remember driving home being like, wow, I can be on stage. Yeah. And my reflexes and, and educated guesses about pop music are, are getting that good that yeah. I can, I, and a song I've never heard before, and no one else in the room would know that. And that was a, that was a big, uh, I, I was just very proud. Yeah. I was like, wow, I'm really getting somewhere with my music. Yeah, well, and that's the know? thing. In the music business, you know, those kinds of accomplishments, you know, it's not like if you're with a corporate job. You know, you do a good job on this project, and your supervisor brings you in as often and said, hey, you did a great job. Yeah. I'm going to give you a raise, and you're going to, and you get to the next level. It's like you've got a path. You've got a kind of a predetermined course. And maybe it'll go a little this way or a little that way. But the, that's one thing I've always thought about the music business is that you are creating your path as you go. And there's, there are, there, you know, before maybe it was a little simpler because there were A&R people out looking for talent. And now the internet has kind of made us lazy in a way. You know, everyone's just looking for the next thing on the internet. The same way we're look shopping for Fiesta wear on the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's different now, and it's it's more challenging now. I think. I mean, there's there's more opportunities, but in some ways that makes it harder to sift through. At least for me, it does. Very much so. I I feel like you just need to be your own judge. Yeah. Like if I make a and you know I know like I'm I'm really glad that there are. You know, I can make a record and sell two to five or six thousand copies. Yeah. Knowing that these people are around the United States and around the world. Uh, you know, like I just, my first CD release party uh, was in Europe. I did a three-week tour in Europe, which was wonderful. And I know that when I put out a record, some people are going to at least want to check it out. They might not love it like they did the last one, or they might not yeah. enjoy it or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, like, I'm not hugely famous, but I'm at least on the radar enough with yeah. enough people so that I can keep doing it and keep making a living. Well, those... My goal is just to kind of like, uh, if my barometer is still working, and I'm still doing something I'm proud of. That's what counts. Yeah. You know, like, like uh, you can't always tell. And, you know, like how many times have, have, have you walked off stage and be like, man, I was horrible, and everyone else thought it was a great show? Yeah. Or you're like, man, that was really good, but then the five people that mattered didn't like it. It's like you, it, 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 art is such a subjective thing, and your individual experience of doing it is so hard to separate from how everyone else felt about it. Um, Especially in a jaded, in day. a jaded industry town like LA, sure. where half the A and R people are people who don't really want to be on stage, or even the technical right. people, you know. Yeah. So we've got a lot of there's a lot of positive vibes too, but sometimes you can run up against some negative vibes, yeah. Because every people are jaded. I mean, that's what happens in a town where people go to find their dreams. You know, not everybody's dream comes true, and you know sometimes that's 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 kind of hard to to hack through, hard to wade through. Sure, there's a lot of cynicism. Uh, there's a lot of jaded people in the audience. Um, and there's a lot of times, you know, like I just played at South by Southwest. It was just an awesome, a huge industry showcase thing. And I wasn't a part of the official South by Southwest. Uh, I went to the, like, there are so many cool little venues that are unofficial. 
And you can just go around. I mean, I literally did seven or eight shows in Austin in the course of those four or five days. Yeah. Some were solo. Some were with buddies of mine from Texas or L.A. who are out there. Um, all different versions of my band. All people I've played with before and was friends with already. Uh, and so it was really wonderful. I got to really think on my feet, make great music. A bunch of the DJs and writers and just fans I know I met, uh, were, were able to come to my shows. Um, you know, I didn't get a huge new uh, booking agent out of it or anything like that. Like originally when people used to book, try to get into South by Southwest, it was to get seen by the big labels and the A&R people. And then you'd make big things happen. you get signed at South by Southwest. Actually with Shooter Jennings, there was already a lot of talk and the label was on the verge of signing us, but they really signed us at South by Southwest yeah. in 2004. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's like that kind of thing I, I'd imagine still happens. Yeah. Well, I, I, I more or less knew it wasn't really going to happen to me this time, but that wasn't enough of a reason for me not to go. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm still going to go to Texas. I had a great tour. I booked about maybe nine or ten other shows that were like cool paying gigs, most of which I'd done before. And that are rooms I love playing in. Uh, so I had a good, successful little tour. Yeah. And it's like, if I can come home being proud of what I did, yeah, I can keep doing it again. Measuring success by your own barometer is probably the best way to measure success. Yeah. You know? And you know what's funny, though? We actually didn't get the answer to the question of how you actually got into the... Oh, yeah. I'll tell you. But, but first, you know, actually, before we do that, we've gotten pretty far into the show. We're having a great... I'm having a great time. Me um, too. But I want to hear some more music before we do okay. this. Let's break it up. Let's play a little tune okay. here. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll get the actual answer of how you got that gig and then where you, <laughs> and then where you went from there. But no, this is great. This is uh, okay, okay, this is why we do the show. You know, right we're on, having right we're on. having fun doing this. So it's 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 you know we want it to be fun for our listeners, but fun for us too. And this yeah. is great. I'm having a good time. So uh, tell me a little bit about this tune, and uh, and okay, we'll get rolling with it. Right now, I'm going to do a, a song called "Right Down to the Wire," um, uh, which is a song I wrote with a buddy of mine named Logan Mize, who lives in Nashville. Uh, and this one is really kind of just about persistence and survival and uh, kind of being confused by who you are but trying to understand it and just kind of keep rolling. Okay. Uh, anyway, so here it is. This wild heart inside of me It's made mistakes but it's made me free And it's pushing something through my veins Like the wind across the western plains It might take a year, it might take a day And I might get lost along the way like waves crashing on the shore Said over and over I keep coming back for more Whoa, whoa, whoa Like it's looking for a home And each drop of rain will fall Until it hits the ground alone And when lightning strikes it's bound To set the night on fire I live my life like it's right down to the wire Why do I live my life 
Like it's right down to the wire Each day I walk a country mile Wearing these boots down with a smile So I take my chance and bide my time Till the next ride comes on down the line Like it's looking for a home And each drop of rain will fall Till it hits the ground alone And when lightning strikes it's bound To set the night on fire I live my life like it's right down to the wire Why do I live my life like it's right down to the wire Each time I think I've reached the end The sun comes up and I start again And I have to follow where it leads This wild heart inside of me It's bound to set the night on fire I live my life like it's right down to the wire Why do I live my life like it's right down to the wire? My guest tonight on Independence Day, the ridiculously talented Ted <laughs> Russell Camp. That was a brand new song from the new record, correct? Yeah. That yeah. song called Right Down to the Wires, playing yeah. his, uh, his old Gibson here in the studio with us tonight. Old enough Gibson, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and we're very, very happy to have you, man. Uh, you've, you're, you're, your shadow looms large over the, the, like the L.A. music scene, oh. you know, at least at the levels of the people I know, the circles I Thank run you in. Thank you for saying that. Um, you know, you've, you play so many different instruments. Like, I look at, you know, looking back at your bio, looking at the record you have here. Um, when bass is your primary instrument, why, why bass? Why bass? Um, I don't know. There's something wonderful and foundational about it. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, we had our, our what, mandatory chorus class that everyone had to take. And then my music teacher, my chorus teacher, uh, there was an electric ba- and, uh, At the end of the year, there was always a three-week 
learn to play acoustic guitar class. So everyone gets these cheap nylon string guitars that were obviously donated to the school. And everyone learns how to play Kumbaya and the Sloop John B. And where have all the flowers gone? Uh, and one day I showed up early <clears throat> and there was a guitar case in the corner. I said, hey, what's in there? And she said, that's my son's electric bass. I said, wow, can I look at it? And the music, whatever, this, the music teacher's son, for whatever reason, left his bass at the school. And I got there early, and I said, wow. And I opened up the case, and I was like, that is just beautiful and cool. What is that? She said, that's his bass. I said, well, can I play it for a second? She said, yeah. And I, I immediately loved it and flipped out. And I told my parents about it, and it was my Christmas present the next year. Oh, very nice. You know what I mean? Those are good parents. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, and there's just something about it I always loved. The bass is often, it, it, it works well when you're insecure and shy and, uh, and you like following, you like supporting. Uh, as a kid, I was all of those things. I, I, I needed to have someone who was more comfortable being loud, playing drums and lead guitar and singing mm -hmm. so that I could play along and just kind of dig going do, 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 do. Do, do. Yeah, which is a, which is a challenge to become yeah. to become an and everyone a lot of people joke about how easy it is to play bass and it's kind of the easiest role in the band and it's easy it might be easier to be an okay bass player than it is to be an okay lead guitarist or an okay lead singer uh, because most people don't really notice the bass that, but to become a great bass player is just as difficult as anything else and the thing about being a great bass player that a lot of people don't know is being a great bass player does not mean playing more does not mean playing, yeah. or necessarily mean it playing It means listening. It, it means doesn't, fitting in better. It doesn't mean playing a big solo. It doesn't right. mean posturing. It means mm -hmm. hanging together with all this other stuff yeah. and f finding your moments. It's find and it's finding a way to glue the rest of the band together. Absolutely. Very often guitarists and fiddle players rush. Very often drummers are the only ones who can really keep time and really have studied the art of sounding good with a metronome. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, so in the context of all this different stuff happening and people getting louder and softer and dropping in and dropping out, you really can glue the band together. Yeah. When I was, uh, shortly after college, I would always go back to visit. I was, I was living in Seattle and playing music for a living. And every Thanksgiving or Christmas, I'd go back and visit my folks in New York. And I'd get back together and meet up with my old buddies from my high school and college bands at the local coffee shops or whatever. And... Uh, one by one, they all stopped playing music. No, maybe one or two of the other guys are still doing it. But we'd always talk about what we learned this year. And one year I came home and I said, I figured a lot about the bass this year. And they were like, what? And I said, um, did you ever see a band and the singer's really good, but then the drummer seems really good, and the lead guitar guy is really good, or maybe the keyboard player is really good, but they still don't feel right and no one's dancing. That's because they have a bad bass player. There's no one to help it gel together. Yeah. It's a lot of individual egos not necessarily working together. Um, and that's kind of what the bass does. I think that's why a lot of bass players can become producers. And you start because you really have to hear how your instrument fits into the whole. Yeah. And the way that, like, uh, I mean, let's take a great singer like Janis Joplin. She was known for freaking out and being soulful and honest and passionate and going to the next level. And taking the audience with her. You know what I mean? She's not known as like a great and subtle listener. You know? Right. Perry Farrell is a band, Jane's Addiction, I loved when I was in like high school and college. And, and he, was, he was a crazy man. 
and you went to see Fer Perry Farrell be crazy when you went to see Jane's Addiction. And one of the things that was so great about Jane's Addiction is that the rest of the band was the perfect soundtrack to his rocking insanity, in the same way that the rest of the Doors were perfect to back up Jim Morrison. Which or, is funny because there's no bass player proper in the Doors. Well, yeah, but Ray Manzarek was a monster. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what he could do, I mean, he was a great bass player with his left hand. Yeah. And then he could do anything he wanted to with his right hand, and he composed yeah. a lot of that stuff. Yeah. There was a great uh, story I heard that at one point they did a tour in Europe, and Jim Morrison was just so drugged out of his face, he couldn't perform. And Ray Manzarek just said, no problem, I'll sing. Yeah. And he sang the whole show. Yeah. On, on top of what he was already doing. And I wonder in those eras, as, as you know, tweaked out as everybody was, if anybody even noticed. <laughs> yeah, I know, totally, totally. <laughs> you know what I find is the most interesting thing uh, about bass being a challenging instrument to play or taking it to that level where you're kind of doing it better than other people. I find bass to be the hardest instrument to sing, lead, and play at the same yeah. time. Like, it's easy for me. I never thought twice about playing guitar and singing. Right. Easy, right. easy peasy. Uh, or playing keyboards. I'm not that good of a keyboard player, but I'd still find it easier to play keyboards right. and sing. Even drums. I find it easier to play drums and sing. When I try to play bass and sing lead... It's real hard. That to me, because th I think that's where you find that, that, that... What am I looking for? The essence of bass is like you have to be solid and you have to be kind of... I don't know, repetitive is not the right word, but you have to be solid. Solid right. with your notes, solid with your time. That that you know the tonic, that root chord has to be And the volume, you can't get loud all of a sudden and yeah. soft all of a sudden. Like you have to have the right notes in the right place. You can flub up a little bit on guitar. You know, you can play a B minor over a D, and it's almost the same chord. Nobody's going to notice that. <laughs> yeah. You play, you know, something that's off on the bass. Everyone feels. Everyone in yeah. the entire room knows that you just you just dropped a clam on stage yeah you know and i and i find that to be the most challenging instrument i even play it's even easier for me to play accordion and sing than it is for me to play bass and sing like that is to me because i think i've such respect for the bass yeah that i'm not gonna do it half-assedly like i want to do if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it right yeah. and you know i can sing backups it's easier it's a little more forgiving but like singing lead and bass man i've tried it a few times with my band and it's tough no it's a different it's a it's a different thing and i'm and i i mean when i uh when i play with a band i play bass and sing yeah and i'm just i've it's a skill that i've been working on and developing and both singing and bass playing are kind of natural voices for me in yeah. a way now would you uh would you indulge us with a tune didn't you brought a bass tonight i brought a bass and I'd i would love, love to hear a tune give me a second to switch over but yeah i'd love to do a song on the okay. bass for you all right what's this tune gonna be uh uh let's do uh another love song okay very this nice. is also off the new record. All right, great. My guest tonight, Ted Russell Camp. Very, very happy to have him on the show. He's got a brand new record out, just came out, but you can still see the CD release party for that in uh, late April, just a few weeks from now, at the Grand Ole Echo for free on a Sunday night. Excellent show. I highly recommend you should all go. I will I will probably be there, I'm guessing, I'm hoping. Well, excellent. Uh, excellent. TedRussellCamp.com is where you can learn about him. Also, Facebook.com slash TedRussellCamp, Twitter.com slash TedRussellCamp. And that's Russell, two S's, two L's, Camp with a K. That's, the, that's a key thing for the Internet. That's right. Yeah, so let's hear this on Independence Day. Sitting here in a cold bar 
see a couple on the dance floor. I'm wishing I wasn't so far away from you right now. But too long since I left home, too long on the lonesome road. I knew the job another day in another town. I don't need another love song I just need you to hold on Said I don't need another memory Strip me along Do you want to see another slow dance Cause it just brings me down I don't need another love song I just need you right now Saw you a week ago Making eyes from the foul throw But it was just my weary heart Messing with my mind Said, girl, you know what I want to do When I finally get back to you I'm gonna love you till we stop The hands of time Now I don't need another love song I just need you to hold on I don't need another memory Stringing me along Don't wanna see another slow dance Cause it just brings me down I don't need another love song I just need you right now
My name is Joe Armstrong. You are listening to Independence Day. Tonight, our guest, Ted Russell Camp, excellent musician, excellent songwriter, excellent singer. Uh, I've been trying to place, as I've been listening to your music, working on this show, like what, I can't figure out who you remind me of in terms of your voice. Hmm. Um, it's like a, almost like a 70s soul singer kind of thing, which I really dig. All right, on. Uh, so very, very cool with oh, what you're doing you there. Did you say 70s soul singer? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. What's well, a... Uh, I dig it. You know, whatever you're doing, I dig it. We talked before about, you know, finding your voice. And, yeah. you know, you certainly found something that sits well with what it is that you're doing. Yeah, it took a while to get there. And I, 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 I felt, I thought I sounded like a suburban college kid for yeah. too long yeah. in, my, in my career. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, and I loved what you did with that tune, Finding a Way. You know, it seems like somewhat an orthodox thing to accompany yourself with just an electric bass. Yeah. And to play a song. Um, but you did it, and it was, it was just enough. You know, Good. you didn't go bananas with the bass with that's that the crazy goal. stuff. Like it that's was, the it was hit the sweet spot, which is exactly you know that's that's the hallmark of a seasoned musician. So once again, kudos to you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I, I I've been doing the bass. Sorry to interrupt. But I've, been, I've been doing the bass more uh, the last year or so. Like like uh, I would travel with the acoustic acoustic guitar and the electric bass, and then when I play solo, I play acoustic. And then when I got a band, really when the budget can afford a band, I I bring in friends of mine or hire locals, whatever, to, to be the band, and then I play bass. Uh, and then I just started working. I had a cup for a long time. I had one or two songs that I could do on the bass. It's kind of a cool little bonus Yeah, it's thing. a unique thing. And then I started doing it more and more. And uh, I literally last week at South by Southwest was the first solo show I did, which was entirely on the bass. Oh, interesting. So 45, it was an experiment, and it was, went really well. Um, uh, but finding ways to arrange it so it's not just the single note thing, it doesn't get boring. Uh, and I also have no, like, I've never been a, a million notes kind of a guy. Uh, like, I never really related to Primus, never really related to Victor Wooten. Um, uh, I had a very brief Jaco Pistorius phase. When, when, For a and, bass player, it's like then, a kiss phase, I guess. Yeah, and then once you learn how to do it, or at least begin to do it, and, I mean, that guy was unbelievable. Like, I mean, actually, all the guys I just mentioned were unbelievable are or were unbelievable musicians. Uh, so it's not like I don't respect what they do. It just doesn't feel appropriate to me, and it yeah. doesn't help me express myself doing yeah. that. When it's too many notes, I get, I get lost, and I feel like the listener gets lost. Yeah. I, like, I'm glad that I speak. I'm glad that I sing in English, and I tell stories with the songs. I want yeah. you to be able to understand the lyrics and know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, very, very much. I'm trying to think of bass players that I particularly respect uh, off the top of my head. You know, I, I, I loved Stan Lynch, honestly, to go back to the Heartbreakers once again. Um, and then now they've, you know, I thought it was so interesting that when Stan Lynch died, Tom Petty's bass player. Oh, Howie Epstein. I'm sorry. Yes, I kept saying Stan. I'm sorry. Yeah. Idiot. Uh, yes, Howie Epstein. Yeah. Loved what he was doing with Tom Petty's band. And when he when he passed, so unfortunately, that I thought it was interesting that they went back to Ron Blair, yeah. which was the guy who the, came out with them. Or maybe he was from here, but he was like the original guy, like one of the original bass players. Yeah. And, you know, how cool of them to go back so far and pick a guy who had been out of the music business for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, and imagine getting that call. 
you know, yeah. you're Ron Blair, and hey, what are you doing? <laughs> How would you like to come down and be and, part and of the the Heartbreakers? One again? of the big, one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Yeah, well, Funny we'll make again. we'll make yeah. it easy on you. I promise. Yeah. Uh, but let's you know this. Let's let's take a step back. We never did got got that answer. Like, so you came to L.A. Oh, the shooter thing, and then because um, like, that seems to me that was like your first gravy gig. It seems like uh, to me. in a way, in a way, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I I was I was getting into the music that has evolved into all of my records, uh, the songwriter thing, love of southern music, combining country and soul is something I really love to do. Um, country, soul, rock, blues, kind of fitting in in this very kind of just American mishmash of genres um and uh so i was playing a lot in town with a lot of different bands and i was i was really finally getting to the point where i could turn down gigs that i didn't want to do and i was getting very specific okay this country rock thing is what i love uh and then shooter uh was putting together the band that evolved into us and uh a few different people said you got to meet ted He's the right age. He's loves all the stuff you love. Uh, he's kind of country and kind of rock and roll. He's kind of into Led Zeppelin. He's kind of into Waylon and Willie and the outlaw thing. Uh, you got to meet him. And so two people, one, one guy who was an old friend of Shooters who I used to, who, who I played in his band briefly, um, and then the guitarist that ended up playing with us with Shooter. He and I had done a bunch of gigs. I used to play in his band. He used to play in my band. And so we, and so anyway, he met Shooter through other friends. And within, within two nights of knowing Shooter, he was like, you got to get Ted in this band. He's going to, uh, the, the bass player we have now is good, but not great. Ted is the perfect guy for this. And so um, maybe a couple of weeks later, Shooter just gave me a call and said, hey, I've been hearing your name around town. You want to come by for an audition and hang out? And they had a little rehearsal place on a Hollywood, near Hollywood and Vine. Uh, and I went by one night, and I knew the guitarist. Uh, and I just remember immediately understanding the music. Uh, I, I immediately got it. There were songs I'd never heard before, and I immediately kind of just knew where they would go. The drummer and I had, Brian was his name, Brian Keeling. Uh, we had a great kind of vibe and sense of rhythm right away. I got Shooter's songs. Leroy, the guitarist, was real, like, he was giving me, you know how, like, when you want to help someone get through a song they've never heard before, you can do a little like voice leadings, do little melodies that kind of set up where the next chord is going to go. Yeah. So Leroy was doing enough of that, uh, and it was great. And then that was that was kind of the first night. It was just a very organic. Yeah. Come, we're gonna we're, we're jamming, and then I, th I think like uh, we had a gig at the Viper Room, or they had they had a gig booked already at the Viper Room for like the following week. So I just did a couple rehearsals and did that. Um, and, and in that audition slash jam, they were already doing three or four songs that were on the first Shooter record. Okay. So, uh, so and, and there were also some covers that didn't make the record and some other, other songs of Shooters that didn't make the record. But uh, that, for, that was great. We all, st like, I was very inspired, and, I, like, I wrote a tune that was on our first record. Leroy wrote some that was on the record, too. Uh, it was a wonderful, it was, it was a wonderful... Uh, kind of beautiful uh, moment in time. So you were essentially ground floor with yeah. with Hid the whole Shooter Jennings thing. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool because yeah. you know, is he a guy? Is he pretty loyal to his band? He's very loyal. Actually, here's another cool thing. Shooter didn't really know what he wanted the band to be, 
And he was like, great, now we got a four-piece. we got to find a fiddle player or a steel player or a guy who can play acoustic guitar and sing harmony real well. And I was like, no, shoot her. We need to stay like this. If we're a four-piece like this, we're the Led Zeppelin of country music. This is exactly what mainstream country needs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I knew everyone was a great musician. Everyone had a real sense, and Shooter just had a really, uh, just, just, he knew what he wanted to say, and it was just funny enough, and just smart enough, and just, you know what I mean? Uh, and just soulful enough. Uh, and, and then we kind of jammed that way for a couple of weeks, and after a while, I was like, oh, no, I think you're right. I think we need to, we need yeah. to be a four-piece. This is really cool. So, so how, many, how many albums and shows did that lead to? That was... We did three uh, studio records, roughly one a year, every year and a half. Uh, we did a live record, live at Irving Plaza in New York, which mm-hmm. was great. Uh, and then we did another, another fourth studio record uh, after that. Yeah. And, so that. and then we toured. Let's see. We recorded that first record, put the O back in country is what it was called. Uh, we recorded that, I think, in the throughout 2004 and then it came out in early 2005 so we toured 2005 2006 2007 up to 2010 we did six six good solid years but then on the road but i guess what i'm asking you know i'm just looking for a ballpark here were you guys doing because oh how many shows how was this like a road dog kind of band where you were doing like 100 100 100 dates a year the first first couple years we probably did 150 160 dates then it, it kind of gradually, actually, all every year kind of gradually slowed down. Okay, uh, and that's also the economy was getting worse towards the end of that, also. So we we, the first year I think was one eighty, second year was one sixty, next year was one twenty or one thirty. That's a lot of dates. Then it was about a hundred. Then it was eighty. Then it was and and you know by the by our our fifth my fifth and sixth year of touring with Shooter we were you know we would like fly out for a weekend. Yeah. And do that, that kind of stuff. Which, in some ways, is the preferred way to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, a lot of artists are like that now. You know, we've got a couple of friends playing in Dwight Yoakam's band. Yeah, totally. And they, you know, summer's a busy season still, you know. They'll sure. probably do more dates then. And festivals. Festivals, and that, that kind of thing. But, you know, artists, as they get a little more seasoned, let's say, yeah, they prefer, you know, there's uh, a band out of Canada called Blue Rodeo. I know those yeah. guys fairly well. You know, big fans of theirs. Jim Cuddy sang on my last record. Right on. Like almost friends, I'd say. We're not Christmas card level, but we're, you know. <laughs> we, I know they're them. There. When they come to town, they refuse to let me pay to see them play, which is that's right. nice. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, they don't do big tours anymore. Right. They don't need to. They, you know, they'll, they'll if, if it's a West Coast or Canadian band, so if it's a West Coast tour, they'll fly out and then maybe have their gear meet them or, you know, because I'm assuming they're to the point where they can do that, do a string of dates and then come back. Or they'll fly to, you know, drive, take a bus around the Midwest for two weeks. Yeah. You know, and that two or three weeks is a long tour nowadays. The the economy's, you know, unless you're a big band. Yeah, it's changed. The economies have changed. changed. And I also like doing, like when I tour on my own, I like doing 10-day tours. You can leave on a Wednesday or something. And come back like the following Get a couple Sunday, weekends Monday. In. So you, you encapsulate two weekends. Uh, and it's like a really good amount of time to kind of get in the swing of things and get going. And, and have a nice momentum and yeah. feel like you're growing every night. And then, and then you get home yeah. without, without going crazy. Yeah. And if you've got, you know, if you've got family, 
you've got a dog, you've got whatever at home, yeah. because that's one thing, you know, those, those bands you read about who go out for, you know, I remember reading about, uh, remember the band Spin Doctors? Sure. You know? Well, actually, when we were in upstate New York when I was in college, we, used, we opened for the Spin Doctors yeah. four or five times, uh, right as they were growing and growing, and then, like, the moment they broke with uh, a pocket full of kryptonite yeah. was the album. And but they were, yeah, they were on the road nonstop. They were on the road, and Dave Matthews, when he started out, too. These Some of these bands were on the road in, in nonstop for years, and to a certain extent, yeah. you strike while the iron's hot. But it's not like these bands came out of nowhere. They had been, you know, by the time those bands broke, they'd been playing on the road. For years. For years. You know, Dave Matthews, he sold, I remember reading this once, he sold, I don't know, was it 100,000 CDs out of the back of their van? Yeah. Something like that. Like huge amounts, you know. So right. they got the label attention because they'd been playing forever and ever and ever. But the, the, he could go to them and say, look what we did without you. You know, let's see right. what we can do with you. And yeah. they're in a very enviable position in that regard. Uh, so, you, so you guys did a pretty good amount of shows, you know. Yeah. Uh, is he still? I, I admit I don't know. Is he still active these days? What's he doing? Yes, he is. Yeah, he is. Actually, I just saw him in Austin. He was okay. in South by also. Um, but uh, he's so he ended up moving to New York and wanted to kind of retool the whole operation. Um, so he he moved to New York a couple of years ago and uh, found a really wonderful bunch of guys there who are very talented. And he did. He I think they. I, they, I think they recorded two albums at the same time okay. and released one last year and then released the second one like a, a week or two ago. South by Southwest was the debut. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it was really nice to see Shooter again. Uh, you know, like Shooter and I, we'd never had a falling out. We didn't, like, I didn't, I didn't quit and he didn't fire me. It was, it was just like, okay, let's just take some time off and see what happens next and da-da-da-da. Yeah. And he ended up in New York. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, Working with new guys in his new location made sense rather than saying, "Hey, I want to record next week." Right? Can we all? Can you all fly in from LA? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but they sounded great. The new record is good. It's called "The Other Side," uh, and it was nice to see him. And also, yeah. like some of the same crew guys are still there. Yeah, so I was yeah. able to come and hang out with them. Re, uh, reinvention nice. is so interesting to see how artists do that. And I always think of the guy I think of is Steve Earle. Oh yeah. How you know he would have the same group of guys and he would do three or four records. And then generally kind of tour with those guys, too. Mm -hmm. And then he had to kind of flip it over. Because I think as an artist, you kind of need that reinvention. You know, yeah. you, don't, you don't have to go all Bowie on it and have everything be and way have out. every single have album every, be a completely different experience. Yeah, like you do have like a period. You know, he had like his El Corazon, Transcendental Blues, and then yeah. a couple of other records. Totally. Did that for a few years, and then... He moved to New York, actually, from Nashville, and then turned over his sound. And I, you know, I, I like what he did there too, because it, it provides you as a, as a writer with new new things to write about, new instrumentation. You know, it, it can be it yeah. needs, it's reinvigorating. It needs new to new sounds can be very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. And you've you know you're no stranger to that yourself. You've got a boatload of records now, man. That's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty cool. You know, you've yeah. been doing. Uh, you know, they're all in this vein. This kind of you know, earthy Graham Parsons kind of cosmic American music style thing, this like outlaw country thing. But, you know, you're you're progressing. You've got And each one's different. Each one's different. You know like I can I, I really like documenting uh actually I really like documenting my friendships for the year. Yeah. The people I'm playing with. Yeah. You know, like I always of course I'll always or not always, but I often like hire a couple of my kind of idols. My, you know, like I, uh, I brought in Kenny Vaughn to play, who's like one of the most unbelievable guitarists in the country, yeah. possibly the world, and he's just like played with almost everybody under the sun. 
Um, and so I did, a, I did a couple afternoons of sessions with him having Kenny yeah. play on some of my tunes. So I'll, I'll do stuff like that sometimes. But for the most part, it's people I gig with and people that are friends of mine. Yeah. And I like that the albums, each individual record documents what I'm into that year, what I'm inspired by that year. I can hear the songwriting shift. I can hear the, the people on it shift, what uh, production-wise, the sounds I'm into. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all fairly consistent. I think if you get one of them, you can, you'll probably dig the rest of them. But uh, uh, I do like how, and what you're talking about, it, yeah, it really is CD release party. Yeah. But it really is a record. Yeah. It's a record of, of what I'm into this year, what I'm motivated by. The best I, and I kind of see the record as it's the best I could do at this point in my life. Yeah. It's a chronicle. Hopefully, next, hopefully every year I get a little bit better. Yeah. But it's a chronicle, definitely. Chronicle of what's going definitely. on. Talk to me. You know, we've got just a little bit more time. I want to get one more song under the wire right, here great. before we run out of time. But before we have that last tune, uh, I noticed you do a lot of co writing yeah. on your stuff, which I think is very, very interesting. Some artists are, you know, dogmatic about not co-writing right. some artists kind of always write together some artists have like the Loris and Olsen or Lennon McCartney thing where they kind of bring in the tune to the other guy and the other guy adds the harmony but they're not really writing together or in they, some cases the other guy edits yeah and some guy the other, like hey I got a bridge that would work with a little that. spit There's polish yeah. talk to me um, because you're someone who's so into this this co-writing thing talk yeah. to me a little about your your co-writing process okay how, how do you choose to take which song to which person does it happen organically do you call people up and say hey I've got an idea like how does it work for you? It's usually pretty organic. Uh, when we fir- well, first I should say when we when we before Shooter, I would co-write, but it was always with people I was in a band with. You know, and it was always kind of for the specific project of what we were doing. Um, Proximity, I think, is what they call that. Yeah, just trying to make great music that's going to be fun for us all to play. You know, uh, you know, going back to my first high school band where the drummer loved the Stones. And the guitarist loved Husker Du and R.E.M. The keyboard player loved Genesis. And I dug Boston and the police. Okay. We had to start writing together to come up with something we'd like. Yeah. You know? Uh, but uh, when, we, when we first hit the road with Shooter, I had a song on that first record, which actually was the second single from the record. It was called Steady at the Wheel. And um, uh, I wanted to go to Nashville and write. That's something I'd always wanted to do. And so because I had a cut already, uh, people at publishing companies would return my phone calls. Uh So I started writing with different people. Uh, And some I related to right away, and some I didn't really relate to. Um, I ended up getting a publishing deal with a great company uh, just off of Music Row called Cal4. Uh, And they really liked what I did. They really got that I was kind of outside of Nashville, but kind of cool and poetic. And we had a lot of, you know, they had a good time putting me with people who were more traditional or established national writers so I could throw in this kind of cool, quirky thing. Yeah. And a different side of what the narrative could be, and then the other person would add a little more to the songcraft. But anyway, I, I mean, I've been writing off and on a national for maybe six years now. Seven Very nice. Years. Um, That's great work if you can get it, man. Oh, it's wonderful. It's, it's uh, easy is not the right word, but it's simpler then, you know, it's, it's, I've called it a machine kind of derogatorily in yeah. the past. But, no, but the writing itself can, is very inspiring. Yeah, but it's nice to have infrastructure. Yeah. It's nice to know that you can go in and write with somebody, you know, sit down with 
a notepad or a laptop and a bottle of scotch or whatever it is that you do, whatever yeah. the process is, yeah. with another person, a couple of guitars, keyboard, whatever, and then hammer out a song and then know that it might actually go somewhere. Yeah, know that someone else, uh, and in, in my case, I know that, okay, I could do it on my record. Often the other person makes their records. Uh, or our publishing company can pitch it to Leanne Rhymes next month. Right. Or Brooks and Dunn. Well, that's what I mean. You There's know, yeah. You can create a song, and you're not just creating a song in a vacuum, or you're creating right. a song that you know will wind up only on your record because no one, sure. that's where its only, it's only sure. home could ever be. You know, you're, when you do that, it has all kinds of, you never know where it could go. Yeah, in, in a way, though, there's a, there's a threat of it becoming more generic and less personal because you can get in the trap of trying to write something for someone else. Right. Uh, or, or writing for the trend. Yeah. Uh, in what, whatever's going on in country music that month or that year. It's like, oh, Jason Aldean's going to be cutting again. Yeah, We need yeah. some tough songs about, I don't know, trucks or, yeah, or yeah. Uh, hanging out late at night or da-da-da-da uh, that, that he can sing. Yeah. And then... Uh, and and so I would do a lot of writing, and some people are more successful at writing with that goal in mind than others. Yeah. Um, and like I, I don't know. It was hard. There were there was a while where I felt like every single song would start. You're about halfway through the song. You're like, okay, do we want to get deep and personal with this, or do we want to try right. to make it a hit? Yeah, yeah. And then, so, and of course, that's kind of an oversimplification. Some, I think most of the best country songs and some of the biggest country songs of all time are truly deep and personal and universal. Yeah. And there's all these great examples of people like Radney Foster or Anthony Smith or Chris, Chris Knight, people who are just really kind of just, in, in some cases, uh, are actually a guy that I wrote one of the songs on this last record is Will Hogue. He wrote a song with another guy who I've written with, Eric Pasley. They wrote this great song, Even If It Breaks Your Heart about just loving music and, and following the dream, even if it breaks your heart. And it ended up on Will Hogue's record, uh, which is, a, I don't know if it was an independent release or a smaller major label relief, but, but Will is a real great and talented kind of singer-songwriter, Southern musician, uh, who just kind of goes around and tours and sells records to his fans. He was not going to sell a million records yeah, uh, but then this other band came along and had a major hit with his song. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure if it was it was pitched to them or they got his record and became fans of his record. Said we got to do that song. Yeah, and then the and then the Nashville machine got behind it, and I think it. I mean, I think it was up for a Grammy this year. Yeah, uh, and it was the perfect example of you write something that's soulful and real and honest, and it really can see the light of day. Yeah, not. I mean, so many people, and I can be cynical about it too. Like, yeah, yeah. She she thinks my tracks are sexy, honky tonk badonka donk. It's easy to mock yeah. the the machine because yeah, there's a lot of lighter pop music yeah that's real catchy. I keep I keep a country preset in my yeah. in my car. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna say truck because I actually do drive a truck, but that sounded so cliche. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do it. But I, I keep a uh, I keep a country preset in my truck out of one of those six. Yeah, and and I'm not really into mainstream country right. in in a sense. Like I don't go buy. Leanne Rhymes records. I don't go buy those records, but I love as a songwriter and someone who's a, stu- uh, a student oh, of music. Of so well crafted. I am it's absolutely fascinated yeah. by how it's put together yeah. and knowing how quickly they turn it around and knowing how good some of those players are. Yeah, and like, and I love the guitar solos because those guys can tear it up. And, yeah, they're unbelievable. And, the musicianship know, is just Brent great. Mason and all, you know Paul Franklin, those first call guys. They go yeah. in and they just and it's like wow, you're not hearing that kind of playing. Anywhere else 
on radio. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Know? And you know, in excuse me, I do want to get to that last song real quick here before we get too far over time. Um, but the one thing I want to talk about real quick is my favorite guy for this kind of writing we're talking about, this Nashville writing, is John Hyatt. Oh, he's unbelievable. He is a guy who has. If I could have anybody's career, I think it would be John Hyatt's career. I mean, you can skip the alcoholism part. I'm sure he would prefer to have skipped that too. But to to write songs at that level, because he had a he had a gig, you know, back in the late '70s, like as a as a writer for a publishing company in Nashville, Mm -hmm. and then somehow or another crossed that line. Was good enough. He would write and then do his own records, and then people started figuring out how amazing his stuff was. And next thing you know, I mean, his early you know covers were or people covered him, Susie Boggess, uh, you know, those early tunes, Drive South, all that, and then and then Clapton started doing his tunes, and Buddy Guy started doing his tunes, yeah. and heavy heavy people started doing his tunes. And if he never wrote another note, you know, he can probably go to his check four times a year. I think he's a BMI guy. I don't know, but and, I mean, he's still doing. I mean, his last few records are great. Yeah, he's still going strong, man. He's yeah. unbelievable. But that's what I mean. Like uh, he's he's crossed. He, he has his foot in both camps. Yeah, he can do his own records, but he can probably still go to the mall and not get mobbed. But oh, without a doubt, he's he's a he's a household name among songwriters and many roots musicians. Yeah. yeah, but he's not a household name right among average. So it's people. the it's the perfect music career as far as I'm concerned because yeah. he can go out and tour in a bus. Which is the more comfortable way to tour, yeah. and do his tours, play, make his records. He's yeah, got his great. fans. I'm, I can count myself among their legion. But then, you know, man, I imagine having Eric Clapton, you know, and BB King name their whole album. Their title track of their record is a song you wrote. Right. You know, that's that's you know, I would say success is such a weird thing. It's hard to put your thumb on it. But that's yeah. a, the type of success that allows him to do the other stuff, probably. Yeah. And that's really cool. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Um, I, I did a record maybe six years ago, no, five years ago, called Nashville Fine Line, a takeoff of the Bob Dylan yeah. Nashville Skyline. And it was about trying to ride, walk the fine line of doing something very commercial that was also something very personal. Yeah. Uh, and some are more successful than others. Uh, and, like, this... There was a while when I'd be going to Nashville, and I feel like maybe I was going there too much and trying to write songs for other people too much and i felt like i was losing the ability to write personal music okay so i just had to stop going to nashville for a little while and then i had no musical instincts at all i mean of course you know we could tour and play and gig and perform the music that you'd already written or that other people had written but i had no instincts to write anything and i i, I wasn't afraid that it was writer's block i didn't think it would last forever i know it lasts for a little while and then after a while, I started hearing more melodies, and I was like, oh, I've got to write a song about that. And then, I, and then the next batch of stuff was just kind of very personal singer songwritery stuff or like cool little feet kind of storytelling, but no one would cut it, but I think it's funny kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and now when I go back to Nashville, I feel like I can, I, I, I can do one or either or both. Okay. And I have enough friends there that I've now written with uh, many who are staff writers at other publishing companies or at Cal4, like I mentioned, it was my mine, uh, or just other friends in town that I respect and like. And sometimes I'll have an idea, be like, yeah, this is a, this is a real personal one. I got to share that with this person. Or here's a fun idea. Let's try this. Yeah. Or um, often, like with, with the, a lot of these guys, with Eric Paslay, Dylan Altman is another one. I wrote some of these tunes on, the, on this record with. Uh, we just get in the... Uh, 
Sometimes you have a couple ideas. I got this for an idea, or here's a musical idea. Um, sometimes you just you get in the room and you start catching up and talking about life, and then you start, and then the yeah. thing that you're talking about evolves into a song. Yeah, it it often is very organic. There's so many great people um, there. Tim Easton's there now. Yeah, he, he moved from the. He was out in Joshua Tree for a long time. Yeah. Now he's there. Uh, Gillian Welch, David Rawlings are still there. Uh, Matthew Ryan, if you're familiar with Matthew Ryan. He's, I know the he's, name. He's I don't really know there. his music that well. Um, Jason Isbell, who's got his own career. He's based down a little farther south in North Alabama, was once in Drive-By Truckers, but I yeah. know he's done some work in Nashville. Um, such a great city for that. No, it's easy, it's easy to get, and actually L.A. is very much like this. It's easy to get sucked into this kind of vortex of pop music where it's not really about soul or honesty. It's about doing a job and doing yeah. it really well. I see and the like, word. The word for I mean? me, real, comes up a lot. Yeah. What I want, yeah. I wanted. Whatever I do, I want it to be real. You yeah. know, and that's and I and I know enough about Nashville, you know, um, uh, New York, you know, all these big cities. Like, I just want it to be real. Wherever it's done, it needs to be real. You yeah. know, and you know, man, you're you're doing real stuff. Thank you, you know, very much. And that's that's cool. So we've got about enough time. We're already over, but I want to get one more tune out of you. All right, great. Cool. Would you would you indulge us with another tune? Yeah, I'd love to. All right, cool. So here's a song that uh, it's on the new record. It's called "A Whole Lot of You and Me," and it actually shaped the record a lot. This song started out as much more of a and actually we have a I have a great Nashville publishing company demo of it. I can play it if you want to hear it, but it's big and poppy, uh, and then that. I gradually slowed it down, experimented with it when I was doing it live, and then I came up with this cool melodic bass thing, uh, and it really became kind of the cornerstone for this record. All, all my other records are a little more eclectic. I'd have a, uh, a funkier tune with witty lyrics, and then I'd have a honky-tonk tune, and then I'd have a real singer-songwriter, Jackson Brown kind of a song, and I would kind of jump from genre to genre all trying to be myself and have a tone and have a, you know, a sound. Um, but this record, Night Owl, and one of the reasons I called it Night Owl is I wanted it to be a more consistent mood album. Uh, like I've always loved James Taylor and Nick Drake. Uh, I love, love I Nick love Drake. what, uh, I mean, pretty different than Nick Drake, but I love Bonnie Raitt and how she is kind of this cool, bluesy, but poppy, but mellow. There's always a laid back thing about Bonnie Raitt's music that I really like. Um, and I wanted this album to be something you can put on at night and just kind of vibe out to and follow the stories from one song to the next. Um, and still be eclectic, but yeah, uh, be cohesive in a more obvious way than my other records. Yeah, were. and it's cool. In a singles world, to make albums with a theme like that is, I think, a really cool... Uh, archaic's not the right word, but it's a cool way to make records still. Yeah. Because you know you want you put on a record you know I I'm not I don't live in a world where I put on a bunch of singles and listen to them like I want to put right. on a record and go to that place that record takes me to yeah totally you know? and you've got you've done that with this record uh, well thank you for saying it. most of, most of my favorite records are records that do that for yeah. me and I wanted uh... anyway that was the goal all right so yeah, here's yeah. A, here's a whole lot of you and me. <laughs> Thank you. 
Got a little bit of money and a little bit of gas in my car. I got an old dirt road and it don't have to take me too far. Because I know where I'm going and I'm rolling right to your door. Because a little bit of you is all I'm looking for. A little bit of sunshine, a little bit of shade A whole lot of glad that you came my way Just a lazy hour looking at the blue sky Kind of day Said in the whole wide world There's not a lot that I need Just a little bit of time for a whole lot of you and me Listen to the bluebirds sing And maybe jump in the river Grab a hold of an old rope swing Because there ain't nothing better Than leaving you smile all day I'm gonna hold you tight Until the daylight slips away I said a little bit of sunshine A little bit of shade Oh, I'm glad that you came my way Just a lazy hour looking at the blue sky Kind of day Now in the whole wide world There's not a lot that I need Just a little bit of time For a whole lot of you and me Ted Russell Camp, once again, gracing us with some amazing music from his brand new record, Night Owl, just came out in January. People can pick this up at shows, 
Yeah. Also on, are you on CD Baby? Are you in stores? Um, Where are you? You know, with this? actually, all of my other records are on CD Baby, and I've just kind of I'm embarrassed. I'm a little too busy. This is this will be, I'm sure, but it's not on okay. CD Baby yet. Okay. But uh, uh, TedRussellCamp.com, uh, uh, Amazon, iTunes. Okay. Uh, there's a great. There's kind of the CD Baby of Texas. It's called Lone Star Music. Okay. Dot com, which is pretty cool because they also do great reviews and it's a magazine as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it will be on CD Baby soon. Okay. <laughs> and people can all the usual places where people can find music nowadays. Yeah, and they can sure. learn about you at the website. And I, I highly encourage you know, everybody to come out. You've got a bunch of shows coming up here. Uh, you've got on the, the third, which is very shortly here, uh, The Standard on Sunset. Uh, it's a songwriter series there. You've got Pappy and Harriet's out in Pioneer Town. What a great place to see a band yeah. out close to Joshua Tree. That's the 4th of April. Uh, Friday the 5th, you're back here in L.A. at Villains Downtown, which is this crazy venue. I just went there for the first time yeah. recently. It's cool. It's downtown. It's hip, but parking, it's pretty earthy. Earthy. Parking is easy, but it's in this like almost industrial area. Yeah. I had to, we had to drive around to find the place the first time. And halfway yeah. decent beer selection, which for a fancy beer man like myself, right on. that's very important. Uh, back at Firefly Bistro, Firefly Bistro here in South Pasadena on the 10th. And then, most importantly, of course, the Night Owl CD release party at the Grand Ole Echo on the 21st, which is a Sunday. Those shows are so much fun. People They yeah. do those shows all summer long, every year. A whole series of great artists, great L.A. artists, and some artists from out of town as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, uh, I did my last... I think my last couple CD release parties have been Grand Ole yeah. Echo's. They're always fun. They, I think Sundays, it's free. Music yeah. always starts around 5 or 5.30. Yeah. The headliner goes on at 7.30 or 8. Yeah, so you can be uh, home at a reasonable hour for yeah, everybody really who's cool. got, a, they got a school night or a it's work wonderful. night or whatever they call it. So uh, one last question. we got to get out of here. But advice for, you know, because you've, you've had a lot of success, but you too can go to the mall, you know? You're yeah, oh, yeah. a living at doing yeah. this, but you can go to the mall. What advice would you give, like, a young person looking at the music business today trying to find their way in? Uh, believe in what you do and get good at what you do. Work hard. Yeah. I, 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 like, I, it's, it's so much about persistence. Uh, you know, and some of it, it's like, uh, for a long time, I, I wish I had, I wished I had cooler parents. I love my parents. Don't get, <laughs> don't get me wrong. They're wonderful. But I didn't grow up listening to Pet Sounds and Abbey yeah. Road when I was five. Like, when I was in college and shortly after that, I was like, wow, everyone keeps talking about the Beatles. I got to check out the Beatles. Better, better check them or out. Or like, you know, I remember doing a session and one guy was like, yeah, I want this kind of like hunky-dory guitar tone, you know. And I was like, I have no idea. I vaguely know that Hunky Dory is a David Bowie album. But I, had, I went out that week and I got Hunky Dory. I felt like a lot of my professional life, I was playing catch-up. Yeah, getting music and uh, and one of the one of the things I, one of the ways I learned a lot about music in my twenties and actually, and still, when you're on a band with someone and you like their music and you want to figure out what they're doing, you ask them what their favorite records are. Yeah, and because and, and also as a bass player and we we talked about this too because you've made your own music you've also been a sideman in other people's groups. Often people are not that uh, clear with what they want. They might be trying to be, but they think artistically. It's hard to talk about music. And so if you ask about, hey, what are your, what are your favorite records or who are you inspired by? Then I could get those records and listen to what the bass is doing and what the bands are doing and be like, oh, that's what they want. 
or they're they're yeah. they're they're kind of between this band and this band and this band, and yeah. then their songwriting makes it do this. So then I can get a uh, a better picture of how yeah. to hear what's going on, so that I can make them happy and also be happy doing it myself. So many great musicians I know have an encyclopedic knowledge of just music in general, so they can yeah. p- pick and choose all these different elements from all these different things, and that's our common language. Yeah. Whether you can read music or not, you know, being able to say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we want the, you know, not just the obvious ones like Zeppelin guitar tone, but, you know, we want, you know, we want that Nick Drake guitar tone. You know, that's a yeah. little more esoteric. And no, knowing, you, you, knowing you that hear language. Someone, someone will say, oh, like a bad finger kind of thing. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yeah. you have to know what that yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, every once in a while, someone will get... I, actually, I did a tour a couple of years ago opening for Gary Lewis and Mark Olson. Oh, so nice. They did that great... Uh, their first record together in a long time. Was I saw two record. nights of that at the Troubadour. It was awesome. Anyway, I was like driving around in a van with those two guys for a week and a half in oh Spain and God. France. It was unbelievable. Yeah, such but, an um, education, I'm sure. Yeah, but and every once in a while, someone will pull out something you've never heard of, and it' like what? And and Gary Lewis was was quite good at like pulling out some really obscure stuff. Yeah. I don't know if he was messing with me <laughs> or if he was really into that. You yeah. know what I mean? But or maybe both. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Never but, can uh, tell. But yeah, it's like we all have these touchstones, these cultural touchstones. Yeah. And uh, and it's kind of informs what we do. Anyway, but but to go back with what you're talking about. If it's if it's what you want to do, then work hard. Get good at it, and work hard. Yeah, you know, like I'm I'm far from a household name. In some places, I can walk in, and people are very excited that I got there, and they treat me like I'm famous. Best of both worlds, you know man. I mean? But in but in many circles, I'm just a guy. Like when the phone, you know, when I'm not getting enough calls to do gigs, I have to get on the phone and make gigs happen. Yeah, and make these little tours come together. Work, man. And uh, it's inspiring to make a record, but it's also uh, part of the music industry Yeah, to make a record, have something to sell, and have something to build a career around. Yeah. And well, keep, it, keep it moving every year. Yeah. Let's, let's leave it at that, man. Ted, Russell, Camp, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life, coming down to our show here and telling us all about what you're up to these days. And uh, please do keep us abreast of what you're doing in the future. You know, where, I, I where, will definitely. Where thank you, you are, tours, songs, that kind of thing. And uh, thank you again, man. So, extra special thanks to Ted Russell Camp, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton, and to Valentino Rivera and Hector Lozano from Lancer Radio. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. As always, for Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong, and please be good to one another.